We are in 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 16 through 18 this morning. Three short verses we're going to look at before we break bread and uh, share the cup together. We've talked about this before, that denominations and churches and uh, Christian universities all list away from the Bible. Harvard, Princeton, Yale, Andover, if you're a bit of an academic or a weird person like me and like to read history, if you go back to Andover, Yale, Princeton, Harvard, those schools were started as missionary and ministry training schools for men, sorry, uh, and you had to know German and French and Latin to get in those schools. You're expected to read theology in the original languages of German and French because that's where the theology was influencing America. And as those schools became liberal arts universities, they moved away from this book more and more and more. And it's almost, you could almost plot it on a graph. When Christian universities, colleges, campuses, churches start moving away from a biblical mooring, they will seldom go back. That's why reformations occur. That's why revivals occur. That's why renewing language sometimes works into the Christian uh, economy. And it's easy to point at a church or a university like Harvard or Princeton uh, and, and make comment about that. But I want to ask you in your own personal life, do you know what you've seen, what you've heard, what you believe, and you are moored very well to that? That you're tied to it. If we saw the, did you see the drone flyover footage of what happened in, uh, in Mexico City, Florida? Oh my word. Did you see the boats in that one dock? It was almost like uh, kids had little toy boats and they just shoved them all up on them. Uh, hundreds of thousands, maybe millions of dollars of, of, of boats and all the uh, marine crafts go with it. Just jammed up. It's irreparable, probably. And just the, the devastation that occurs when you're not moored to something. You will be pushed and pulled by tides, by forces, by storms, by currents. And this may sound very old school, it may sound arcane, um, but most people do not sense the shift. Most people are unaware as the tide is pulling them and the, the rope and the mooring is getting more uh, loose, a little slack. We just start grabbing certain theology, certain language in. And before long, we are kind of off on our own. One of the trends, and if you've heard me teach before, I've talked about a lot, is what I call horizontal Christianity. A lot of our country is looking at Christianity, how it services me, my eye. What does Jesus do for me, for my marriage, for my children, for my grandchildren, for my job, my money, my fill in the blank? That's not not an improper uh, way to ask and pray. I'm just asking the question, is it a shift away from whatever befalls me, it's well. And this is a a shift, I think, a current, a tide pulling us away. And I would say many of our young men and women who love God, but they're scratching their head about the church and organization going, is that really what this is about? And some of their criticism is very well founded. So all that to say, uh, this is not a new trend. Peter, in these three verses, I was going to teach the whole rest of the first chapter, but the more I spent time in these three verses, I was like, there's too much here to rush through. And, you know, it's not a race anyway. Uh, but in these three verses, Peter is going to argue for proof that what you've seen and what you've heard is substantial for you to believe. What you've seen and what you've heard is substantial for you, as I like to say, that you know that you know that you know that you know. And 
I was surprised where the apostle went with this, and you may be as well, even some of you BSF, Precef, Community Bible Study, Bible nerds like me, you might have already seen this. This was, this was an aha to me this week when I saw where Peter took this argument. Well, let's look at the first couple of verses, and let me just put it in this. This is the apostolic account of what they saw and what they heard. Two-point outline, what they saw and what they heard. Verse 18. In fact, why don't you read with me uh, aloud, verse 16. Read aloud with me. This is the Word of God, so let's read it well. I'd like to actually hear you read it with me. Will you read it with me? For we did not follow cleverly devised tales when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty." For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, such an utterance as this was made to him by the majestic glory. This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. And we ourselves heard this utterance made from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. Let's go back to verse 16, please, Michelle. So first of all, notice the first person plural we. I don't want to bore you with grammar, but I want to point out grammar when I think it's important for the, uh, the quick English reader. We miss things. It's plural. Peter's writing a letter. He's by himself. So who's the plural we? He's talking about the apostles. And you're going to see how this unfolds in just a moment with these verses. He says, we didn't follow some storyline. Cleverly devised is the word sophizo. Anybody named Sophia in the room? You got any family member Sophia? That's the Greek word for wisdom. Typically a woman was named Sophia. Sophizo is the idea of something that's sophisticated, that's ingenious or artful. Peter's saying we didn't, fo- we didn't follow some sophisticated, ingenious uh, methodology. The word tales is muthos in Greek. Some of your Bibles use the word myths or fables. We didn't make this up. Um, I've got a friend that's on his 250-something fiction work. Well, he's written some biographies, but mostly he's known as a fiction writer. And uh, we were in a meeting years ago, and we were talking about how to communicate something. And I was, you know, I was writing some bullets down, and he put his hand on my piece of paper and goes, Michael, leave the fiction up to me. <laughs> he can write in, in an ingenious, sophisticated, artful way, and you believe it. That's a skill. That's a gift. Nothing wrong with fiction. Nothing wrong with historical fiction. Peter is saying, we didn't come to you with ingenious, cleverly made up fables and tales. That wasn't our argument. And again, this translates to an area that that we all use this word. It's not a bad word. We talk about God's story. And we might have a dinner with a couple. So what's your story? We get what that means. One of the little yellow flags, is there something below a yellow flag? Red flag, of course, you're in trouble. What's below a yellow flag? Anyway, whatever, like a pale yellow flag. Uh, when people talk about God's story, I, I get something cringes in me just a little bit. I'm all about the narrative. I'm all about the Bible. I'm all about scripture. But is that what people mean? Nomenclature is important. Words people choose to use communicates volumes. And when they choose to talk about the story, it's back to horizontal Christianity. I'm just asking the question. I'm not trying to be overly judgmental or too hard. I'm a little hard, but not too hard. But to say, this is not about me. 
You and I are living in a course of life that is to honor him, to serve him, to navigate the unknowns, to navigate the troubles and trials and difficulties and cancer and problem children and all these things that we all go through at some chapter of our life. Alignment vertically with truth, not horizontally with experience. Your and my alignment and bedrock is the truth of Scripture, not my experience. How many of us had experiences we thought were great, six, nine months a year later thought, what an unmitigated disaster this was. And then if we're clever, we say, oh, well, God led me from there through this, so I'd appreciate that. That's just covering our tracks. Come on. Why can't we just say we made a mistake? I read it wrong. It was a dumb choice. Turn the page and learn. What do I harp on all the time? Maturity is when you stop blaming your past, you own your present, and you plan your future. That's a good Christian moniker. We're victims, we're hurt, we're wounded. I'm not minimizing that. Own your present. Own who you are today in Christ. What are you going to do about it for the future? What are you going to do about it? You're going to sit in the puddle? Are you going to complain about it all your life? Go, go for it, baby. Rock your world. You won't grow through this We made some decisions. They weren't all right. Things happened to us. They were unjust. Okay, what am I going to do? I'm in the present. How am I going to live forward? How am I going to plan my future? Peter is saying we didn't make this up. This is a vertical alignment, not our experience horizontally. We made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Now, this phrase, the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, is a bit cumbersome. Most uh, scholars, people a lot smarter than me, take this as one concept, and I lean there for a couple of reasons. The, the word coming is the word parousia, parousia. That typically refers to the end times. And Jesus will say in Matthew 24, verse 30, and then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky. And all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming, that's our word, on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. So here Jesus is speaking, and he uses the same terms Peter uses in his letter, coming and power. So this is a future look. And when you first read Peter's reference, he says, taken together, the power and the coming, he, we think he's talking about Jesus coming in the future. But that's not where he goes with the text. It's very interesting. He says, we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Simple grammar, past tense. We were eyewitnesses of these things. Again, the apostles. Um, Have you ever heard the phrase, the apostolic teaching? Ever heard that phrase? Uh, Again, we, we presume a lot of these terms we use. The New Testament comprised Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, or our Gospels. Uh, The first three, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, are what? synoptic, synoptic. They're similar. John's the outlier. John's language is simple. His theology is very deep and very manifold, and his purpose is very clear that you might believe. Matthew talks about the kingdom of God. He's primarily the Jew. Mark talks about he came to serve, to die as a ransom. And Luke writes to give the most exhaustive, complete account. He's a physician. It's fitting that he, he'd probably be an internal medicine guy. He's a physician. Everything that ever happened according to the timeline, I want to be sure you know about this. So that's how he begins his gospel. And the Dr. Luke wrote more of your New Testament than Paul. You know that, right? He wrote the gospel of Luke and he wrote the book of Acts. More volume than all that Paul wrote. 
So we have Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the outlier. Then we have primarily Pauline theology. And then we have Petrine, Peter's theology. Now, when we, when we read these apostolic accounts, we, Peter speaking, we, Paul speaking, we, James speaking, these were the apostles. These were the ones Jesus handpicked. And they're writing this text that you and I are reading today. And so the apostle Peter is saying, we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. This isn't talking about the future. In fact, you'll see it as the, as the verses unfold. They saw the grandeur, the majesty of the transfigurations, what they saw. Listen to 1 John chapter 1, the first three verses. Also an apostle, right? What was from the beginning, what we've heard, what we've seen with our eyes, what we have looked at and touched with our hands concerning the word of life. Who's he talking about? What they saw, what they heard, what they touched. He's talking about Christ, right? It's self-evident, right? And the life was manifested, and we have seen and testify and proclaim. Just a sidebar on testify. Uh, it's a Christianese word. We want to hear your testimony. It's not a bad word, but it's a Christianese word. What does it mean to testify? You Think no further than a courtroom television show. I swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, nothing but truth. You're going to tell what you've seen, what you've heard, what you know. That's what you're supposed to do under oath. That's a testimony. And Peter is saying, or excuse me, John is saying, we are proclaiming what we've seen, what we've heard, what we know. We proclaim to you eternal life, which was with the Father and manifested to us. What we have seen and heard, we proclaim to you also, so that, purpose clause, you too may have fellowship with us, and indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. When we began Stonebridge, um, we have the steering committee that meets, and uh, I, I really wanted to use 1 John 1-3 to as our philosophy of ministry. I've never seen a church do it, a Christian school do it. I've never known an organization use this passage. But to me, it's a beautiful passage. The apostle saying, look, we, we saw this baton. We held this baton. We love this baton. We're telling you about this baton. We're going to give it to you, and you're going to see it and hear it, and we expect you to give it to other people. It's a great philosophy of ministry, is it not? What we've seen, what we've heard, what we know, what we've tested, we're telling you the same thing. You don't think of that often as a church mission state, but I think it's pretty cool. But anyway, twice in our second Peter passage, we read the word majesty or majestic. It's a very unusual description. Uh, it's nothing short of breathtaking. How many of you have uh, gone to the south rim of the, uh, of the Grand Canyon? You know, I don't care if you've got a 4K television in your home. Unless you've stood on the south rim, you don't ooh and ah appropriately. Uh, when you go to the Grand Prismatic Pond and uh, up up in, um, where am I? Yellowstone Park, thank you. My wife and I were there last year. Uh, you ooh and ah. When you see Half Dome, when you see Old Faithful, you go, oh, you know, <laughs> I came here for that. But the rest of the park is magnificent. When you see Buffalo, that's head is taller than the SUV you're driving, you go, ooh and ah, right? This doesn't even come close to the majesty of the personal work of Christ. 
I don't know what vista you've experienced. I don't know if you've held your first baby, your first grandchild. Of course, the first grandchild ever born on the planet was your first grandchild, right? Uh, I don't care what experience we have horizontally when Peter is talking about the majesty on high, the majestic person of Jesus Christ, this is an expression of divine work that we don't understand. And that's why he's bearing down on this transfiguration account. What the account of the apostle was, what we saw. Secondly, what they've heard, verses 17 and 18. I'm going to read it again. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, such an utterance was made to him by the majestic glory. Interesting phrase to call God the Father. This is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. And we ourselves heard the utterance made from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. The transfiguration is clearly in mind. There's no doubt this doesn't take an exegete, doesn't take a seminary degree. You don't have to read Greek. You just got to read. What's he talking about? He's talking about the transfiguration. What they saw, what they heard, what they were witnesses of. Hebert makes the observation in the Synoptic Gospels. The transfiguration is found in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. He makes the observation, the Savior's announcement was made only about a week before his death. I had never never put that together. They're seeing this transfiguration scene just a few days before he's going to be crucified. They saw this majestic glory. Now, there's three times in your New Testament where God the Father speaks to Jesus audibly. I'm parsing that pretty thin. There's three times in the New Testament where God the Father speaks to his Son audibly audibly. The first one, of course, is the baptism in Matthew 3, verse 16 and following. Immediately after being baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water. Behold, the heavens were open, and he saw the Spirit of God descend as a dove lighting on him. And behold, a voice out of the heavens said, this is, this is when I wish I had James Earl Jones' voice, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Each of the synoptics records Jesus' baptism. God the Father speaks and people heard. God the Father is talking to his son. The second time is in the transfiguration accounts. And if we look at Matthew 17, 5, for example, um, each of the transfiguration accounts, is, they're, they're, they're so identical, but they've got just a little nuanced difference to show the the way the author was recording these things, 17.5, um, the transfiguration. Um, I'll back up just a, a moment here. I'm just going to read the whole thing, verse 1 and follow. This is Matthew 17, verse 1. Six days later, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John. Who's wrote, who wrote the book we're reading? Okay, Peter, James, John, you following? His brother and led them on a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. His face shone white like the sun. His garments became white as light. Behold, Moses and Elijah appeared with them, talking to him. Peter said to him, Lord, it's good for us to be here. Uh, If you wish, we will make three. I, I I love Peter. This is Peter. This is the Peter we're studying. Peter, having nothing to say, says something. You gotta love him. You gotta love him. He says things we all wanna say and know. That's a great thing. What's Peter saying? This is cool. Let's stay a while. This is great. We got you, Moses, and Elijah. Let's build some time. Let's hang out and talk. Let's rap. You know, let's have a let's let's have a meeting. Let's have a conference. You gotta love his heart. 
while he was still speaking, a bright cloud overshadowed them. Behold, a voice out of the cloud said, This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. The disciples heard this and fell face down to the ground and were terrified. So we have the baptism. We have this similar phrase. This is my, well, my, my beloved son whom I'm well pleased. In transfiguration, this is my beloved son whom I'm well pleased. Listen to him. And the third time is unusual. The third time God the Father speaks to Jesus and other people here is found in John 12, 20. I'm not going to turn there, but this is after the Passover. They're going up to worship in Passover and some Greeks come to the apostles and say, Sir, we would see Jesus. Remember that phrase? Sir, we would see Jesus. And God speaks in this little, uh, little phrase and everybody there hears it. Three times in your New Testament where God the Father speaks to his Son, and other people hear it. Now, why am I belaboring this? The transfiguration accomplishes a lot of things. It identifies Jesus as his son. This one. This is my son. Secondly, it argues for a Trinitarian Godhead, meaning Father, Son, and Spirit. It's amazing how many churches and, and people I know that are jettisoning a Trinitarian theology. Why, I don't know. I think it's just trends. It's like, you know, we all need to have uh, hybrid cars. Let's buy hybrid cars. God bless you. You know, we just kind of go down the road there. I mean, I, it's not right or wrong when it comes to cars, but it is right or wrong when it comes to theology. And just because other people say there's no hell, well, he or she was a respected Bible teacher. They don't believe in hell anymore. I don't think the scripture has changed on that point. The eternal lake is eternal lake, eternal lake of fire. Not a temporal lake that gets flushed down the toilet. An eternal lake of fire. So we just get pulled along because well-intentioned people believe things. Identification, personalization. My son. My son. Every person in here that has a son, there's something endearing about a father and son. Why was that the metaphor God chose before the foundation of the world? Was he a chauvinist pig? Is he not politically correct? No, because the father and son's relationship is God the father establishing the son to die for your and my sins. My son, my only son, whom I love. How many times have you read that in the scripture? Abraham, take your son, your only son, whom you love, and go kill him. David, David, my son, my son, my son, Absalom. The language, the metaphor, that father-son connection. It's biblical, it's theological, it transcends time and place. He identifies it. It's personalized. Third, it's unique. It's unique. A father-son's relationship doesn't come a thimble close to God the Father and the relationship to his son. Again, Hebert, in whom I am well pleased, declares the father's approval of his incarnate son. It's an unusual expression and pictures the father's good pleasure going out toward and resting on him. The New English Bible translates, on whom my favor rests. Well, again, Peter continuing, utterance made from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. Now, if you go to Israel, I, I can't believe I said if. That's a third-class condition. Since you are going to Israel, because it is God's will for you to go to Israel, um, you're going to hear it's Mount Tabor, it's Mount Hermon, it's the Mount of Transfiguration, it's the Mount of Olives. You're going to hear all these places, and depending on the, the, uh, the Zion guides we use, they all have an opinion, and you know it's their land. I don't argue with them. I don't know. I don't think the location is as critical 
As we talk about ABC sites, we'll take you somewhere. This is an A site. We can tell you the tabernacle was here. This is an A site. This is the B site, the C site. Probably not, but you know, it's kind of the, the floor and fauna get you close. ABC sites. I don't know where the transfiguration occurred, but this passage and doing some homework is what blew me away. Who's at the transfiguration besides Jesus? Moses and Elijah. What do you know about Moses and Elijah and their Old Testament experiences with Yahweh? Moses saw God where? Mount Sinai. He spoke to him like a man to man. He comes down with the epiphany, the Shekinah, the glory, right? Glowing like God. Freaked everybody out. He was up on the mountain with God. Where does God talk to Elijah? Sinai. Now, it would seem interesting then if the transfiguration occurred, maybe it occurred on Sinai. Why? These are the only two times in the Old Testament where God is speaking to a servant face to face in the way he did to Moses and Elijah, who are arguably the bookends of the law and the prophets. Moses was the lawgiver. Elijah was the last great prophet who performed these supernatural miracles. Obviously, Elisha did other ones. We call them B-class miracles, not A-class miracles. <laughs> Nevertheless, it's a miracle. But think about this. Who's with him? Peter, James, and John. I think Peter, James, and John got this better than I ever got it. They're going, oh my word. The two people that God of the Old Testament spoke to his prophet and his servant Moses was right here, and here we're standing here. And if that weren't enough, the text underscores it when he calls it a holy mountain. Why is something holy? Because we, we think it's a cool place. We, we have this idea of, some of us sang that, that, that song growing up in the 70s, we're standing on holy ground, you know, it's a nice little tune, uh, nothing bad about it. I've got friends that uh, live with chronic pain or mentors, and when I talk to them, sometimes I use the expression, I want to slip off my shoes when I'm talking to so-and-so, because what they're telling me is so otherworldly. I, I feel like a, you know, a kindergarten Christian over against this person that's got so much life experience. They've been through so many hardships and you know, divorces, remarriages, multiple sclerosis, loss of a child. I mean, and, and they talk about God in a way that I think I'm never going to get there. You got people like that in your life? And you just want to take your shoes off. Well, those are all fine. John Calvin says, wherever God appears, he sanctifies everything by his savor his presence inasmuch as he is the source of holiness. In other words, when God says it's holy, it's holy. Let me give you two examples. Look at Exodus 3. We'll show it on the screen, I believe. Then he said, God said to Moses, do not come near here. Remove your sandals from your feet. For the place on which you are standing is holy. Was it holy before God got there? Just a piece of dirt. But the fact that God appears to Moses, that was what engaged him to say, this is holy. And last one, Joshua 5.15. The captain of the Lord's host said to Joshua, remove your sandals from your feet. For the place where you are standing is holy. And Joshua did so. So if you tie this thing together, what Peter is saying, what we've seen and what we've heard, we're telling you, you can depend on it. We saw him, we heard him, 
We witnessed him, and if that weren't enough, when we were on the Mount of Transfiguration, we experienced something that was majestic. And you're never going to see it again until he returns. We saw it, we heard it, we hand it to you. John the Apostle says the same thing. What we saw, what we heard, what our hands handled, we testify, we proclaim to you, we give it to you. So if we just talk about Peter, James, and John, just their writings alone and what they're trying to accomplish for the believer is you understand this transfiguration is an illustration. You can trust him. You can believe him. 